The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. And remain standing, please, for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. And we'll read the first 11 verses, which is the first table of the law of God, the first four commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. Let's give our attention to the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. Thanks be to our God. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, now we desire your word. We desire to seek your face. And Lord, without the eternal spirit working in us, we have nothing and can do nothing. And so be pleased to bless the words of my mouth that all our hearing might be honoring to you. Build us up, instruct us in righteousness. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So a couple of weeks back, uh, Dave, uh, myself, and Matthew got together to discuss how are we going to preach the Ten Commandments. After all, we could preach a whole series just on the commandments themselves. And we decided to preach three sermons, the introduction, the first table of the law, and then next week, the second table of the law. And it doesn't particularly sit well with me to do that, given that these are the Ten Commandments, And there's much in them. I was discussing my dissatisfaction with doing such with my wife before church this evening and saying just how hard it is to preach four commandments in one sermon, to which she replied, well, I think we should camp out longer at Sinai. After all, Moses did. (laughs) And with that logic, I was firmly put in my place. But that is what's before us tonight, the first table of the law in one sermon. Clearly, we're dealing with the the commandments at a very 
high level. If you want to know more about what the commandments require of us uh, and prohibit us, then turn to the Shorter and Larger Catechism, where you will find a very detailed exposition of these commandments. But as we come to Sinai tonight, as we come to the Ten Commandments, we understand we're not just looking at the law of God, we're looking at the substance of the covenant that God made with Israel. That is the context in which the law is given. If you missed Pastor Rockin's sermon last week on this matter, I commend it to you. It was a fine sermon. He reminded us last week that the context of the law at Sinai is redemption and covenant. That is to say, relationship is at the heart of the law of God. God had corporately redeemed his people from Egypt, and now from Exodus 20 through to Exodus 24, is in the process of making covenant with his people. Yes, Ten Commandments are about law, but that law features in the context of relationship of covenant, where God binds himself to his people, as we heard last week, and binds his people to himself. That's to say, friends, for the Christian, for the redeemed, the law always comes to us in this context of a relationship already established, that God has established with his children. And it's in that relationship in the truth of the gospel and the instruction of the law that we find all that we need to motivate us and to equip us for a life of loving God and keeping his commandments. So briefly by way of introduction, I want to reinforce and elaborate a little bit on what Pastor Ockham said last week and ask the question, why does Israel have the law? Why does Israel have the law? And then we look very briefly at the first (coughs) table of the law, both in terms of what it meant for Israel and what it means for us. So firstly, (coughs) why did Israel, why does Israel, why do we have the law? Again, vital to us and to them was to remember that the law was given in the context of of redemption and covenant. One writer says the commandments were given to a people who had already experienced the Lord's salvation. And that salvation was a corporate act. It's not to say that all those who had been delivered from Egypt were individually saved. Indeed, they proved they weren't. But it was a corporate act of salvation. The decreation, the destruction of Egypt is now being contrasted with the creation of a new nation, a new nation, the nation of Israel, brought out of bondage, going into the promised land to be God's chosen people. And that chosenness uh, and that relationship is manifested in these chapters, covenant, A covenant by which God binds himself to his people and binds a people unto himself. Covenant, then, is a mutual binding by God upon his people. They'd been delivered from slavery, delivered from mastery of of the wicked, delivered, as Pastor Rockin taught us, into the liberty 
of the sons of God. Liberty. That's the context in which the law is given. They're bound by God to love him, to honor him, to worship him, and to obey him. And Pastor Ocken taught us last week that that obedience was not a tool to get into relationship with God. The relationship had already been established. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, here are the Ten Commandments. The relationship was already established between God and his covenant people. And this is critical to understanding Sinai, and for the Christian, it's critical to understanding the law in general, because Sinai is both law and it is covenant. That's to say, God called Israel as a people to believe in him, to love him, to honor him, to worship him, and to obey him. And think back, I think, to Pastor Rockin's third point last week. Central to all these activities, love, honor, worship, believe, and obey, central to all these covenantal activities is who? The Holy Spirit. The giving of the Spirit from God to his people. We can't think of law. We can't think of obedience or love, worship, any of our relationship to God. We cannot conceive it without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We saw last week the Spirit's role in enacting the covenant purposes of God by applying the work of redemption to God's people. Really very important. The Spirit's role in enacting the covenant purposes of God by applying the work of redemption to God's people. In other words, God is giving, giving here to his people a charter, a charter of how they might enjoy him while they remain in covenant with him, a charter of glorifying him and enjoying him, enjoying that relationship. One commentator writes of the Ten Commandments, they were given so that Israel would have guidance as to how they ought to conduct themselves And so to continue to enjoy the benefits God had provided for them and thus be capable of fulfilling the destiny the Lord intended for them. That is, in Exodus 19.6, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yes, when we think of law, our minds default to obedience. I think we ought to elevate that. Yes, obedience is very important. But here we have the language of enjoyment and communion, of relationship. In other words, this covenant is not put in place simply to be merely a transaction. God says, I will do this if you do this. No, this is the way the heavenly father gave to his people that they might enjoy him that they might have full fruition of his character and plan of salvation, of his blessedness. This was God marking his people out as my people, distinguishing them from the other nations. He does so also with us, dear friends. 
He marked out Israel as being different from the Egyptians, from whence they had come, and different to the Canaanites where they were going. Different. My chosen people, giving them liberty within the confines of the law. Freedom from Egypt. Freedom from Canaan. Freedom from false worship, from false gods, and in fact from false hope. It's true for us also, friends. This is how law functions for the Christian also. It provides us, in a sense, with the boundaries of true liberty. It's not to say for one moment that law provides us with salvation, but experientially law can provide us with peace as we seek to obey it. I hope I don't need to say this, the Christian need never mistake the law for a system of salvation. When we get confused about things like that, we can ask the simple question, did X die on the cross for us? Did law die on the cross for our sins? The answer is no. Therefore, it's not given as a system of salvation. Very simple way of detecting whether something saves us or whether something is a response to salvation. Law doesn't save us. It never was designed to. Works can't save us. But in observation of the law for a Christian with whom the relationship of sonship has already been established... Walking according to God's paths of righteousness is indeed a life of great blessing. A life of great blessing. With the Spirit working in our hearts. Yes, convicting us of sin, but also showing us the way of righteousness. Pointing us to the Savior. This is why the psalmist could say of the law of God, More desirable is it to me than much fine gold. Sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Yes, in keeping them is great reward. Psalm 19. That's how I hope we'll see law tonight. And the first table of the law, our second consideration, the first table of the law is there before us in the text. And we have to acknowledge that the first table of the law peculiarly and particularly speaks of our relationship to God. It directs our relationship to God. The second table of the law speaks particularly and peculiarly of our relationship towards each other. You'll notice our relationship with God comes first. Because when that is right, then we can begin to work, as it were, on our relationship with each other. But first table and second table belong together. Both are necessary for a life of obedience. Remind ourselves that law serves several functions in our lives. For the Christian, it is a rule of thankful living. How should we behave? We who love the Lord, we should obey Him. It tells us how to obey Him. But it also reveals in us, does it not, that we have not obeyed Him? It reveals our sin and thus has an evangelical work in us in that it points us to the need for the Saviour. We have failed, we have broken God's law, we need a saviour. Even in revealing sin, 
for the Christian, there is blessedness in seeing that. Because when we see our failure, we're called to look towards our Savior. The third way law functions is that it restricts the evildoer. It tells us what is right and wrong and restricts their behavior and brings sanction upon us. I really want to focus on one aspect of the law tonight. That is a rule for thankful living. How then should we live? If you love me, keep my commandments. There we are. There's the connection. Love, gospel, salvation produces in us an obedience. It is a rule for thankful life. How we as Christians are to live in a relationship with the God who saved you. Now, if you're here tonight and you're unclear if God has saved you or you flat out deny the need for salvation, all you will hear tonight is a law which condemns you because the law does that as well. It says, do this, and if you have not done it, then the wages of sin is death. We would commend to you, even urge you, that you no longer see the law in that respect, but that the law takes you unto the Savior who has delivered people from their sins. But for the Christian, the law is a rule for thankful life. Consider any relationship in your life where you have no idea about the boundaries of that relationship. You have no idea what the expectations are, uh, the uh, way of operating and working in that relationship. Uh, Consider that thing, and and you will find yourself always failing in that relationship. Because you have no idea where the boundaries of the relationship are. What are the expectations? What are the rules? You'll always find yourself failing to live up to expectations or always overstepping the rules. Consider that relationship where there's no communication of such standards and there's no way to put it right either. Imagine the trouble, the vexation, the brokenness of such a relationship. Christian, it is not that way with God. It is not that way with your God. In these four commandments, he has spoken in principle about how we are to relate to him and enjoy him and have communion with him. In the gospel And subsequently then in the law, God has given you, dear Christian, all you need to enjoy him and to bring glory to his name. We're not blind. We're not deaf in this relationship. God has told us this is how it is to be. And the first commandment speaks to us about the fact that he is the true and the living God. Look there at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. We are immediately, Israel was immediately confronted with God's claims to exclusivity. There are no other gods. Though they be named, though they have pillars and altars erected to them, actually there are no other gods. There is but one true and living God. 
Israel's confronted with a claim of exclusivity, and so are we. Any temptation for Israel to be like the nations round about them would be a failure to observe God's law. It would be to break the relationship that had given them so much already. As we've said, they've just left Egypt, a land of polytheism, many gods. They're going into Canaan, equally a land of many gods. And the evidence of the failure of many gods lay at the bottom of the Red Sea. That's what the many gods had done for the people of Egypt. And as they went, would go into Canaan and rout the people there, the evidence of the failure of many gods would be seen on the battlefields of Canaan. At Sinai, the covenant people are being constituted truly as one nation under the true and living God. God would have for himself, the true God would have his own people. He would give them their own government, their own land, and their own God, the true and living God. Israel here is to set aside the patterns they had learned perhaps over 400 years in Egypt, the patterns and claims of the other nation. And God is saying to them, there is but one God, and his name is Yahweh. And it's a call to Israel to acknowledge and worship the one true and living God and to remove from their lives any vestiges and traces of the multitude of gods that had proliferated around them in their experience. Friends, we ought also to recognize God's exclusive claim to be the true and living God. Here God declares there are no other gods. There are no other gods. That's the sense and the meaning of the first commandment. It denies the claims of our pluralistic society. There are not many gods, and there are not many ways to those many gods. It's a call to you tonight, dear Christian, to have the true and living God as the centerpiece, the very foundation of your life and existence. That your life must be centered upon the true and living, the almighty God who has saved you from your sins. We owe it to God by creation. How much more then do we owe observance to this command by salvation? And friends, consider the blessedness of this command. That you might know this very night without equivocation. That you might know the true and the living God. While there are billions of people on this earth at this moment who do not know him. He has said unto you, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, the blessedness of such. 
The blessedness to know the true and living God, our great portion, Scripture calls him. Because to live without God is to live a subhuman existence. A subhuman existence. But to live life with this God is to know life itself. Is to know fullness. Is to know blessedness. You shall have no other gods before me. But how is this God to be approached? Yes, he's the true and the living God. He's our God. But how is he to be approached? The second commandment tells us about this. Can this true and living God be approached indiscriminately in any such way that we would like? The answer is no. The simple answer is we must approach him in the way that he has delineated in his word. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The second commandment tells us how we are to approach, how we are to worship God. And the answer is not by our own methods or by our own imagination. Now think for a moment, we're talking not just about what we do in worship, though that's important. The second commandment ties us directly to the Lord Jesus Christ as the way unto the Lord. And what is Christ? He is the living word. And what has God now given to us here as a way to approach him? He has delineated it in his word, the living word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm emphasizing the word. We are not to approach by the imaginations or methods of our own heart, but we are to approach by the means delineated in his word. It's very clear from Scripture that if we approach God, if we worship God by our own methods, he rejects us and our worship. Pretty serious. Pretty serious. Here in particular, there is a principle that we are not to approach God by means of an image or images. God is teaching us this. He does not wish to be approached or worshipped through sight. We should not learn about God through sight, but through the word. That all is necessary to approach him is found here in the pages of his word. God does not wish to be approached or worshipped by means of images. For example, there never has been a picture which is accurate of the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. Any picture of any person of the triune Godhead is then, by definition, an imagination of man's heart. God has not given us such. He's given us what? His word. His word. He will be approached, he will be worshipped through what he delineates in his word. Worship of God or approach to God through pictures produces in us man-made 
rather than word-made ideas of God. That's critical. Worship through images produces in us man-made, not word-made images of God. God has ordained that we shall come to faith by hearing, hearing what? The word of God. He has ordained also that we shall worship him through that which we learn in his word. Friends, to transgress this commandment is to trespass on holy ground. And ungodly ideas of God through images is a great insult to God. The commandment tells us we must approach God in and through Christ. Because if we approach by any other means, any other method, any imagery, we're not approaching through the Christ of the word, but the Christ of our imagination. Rest on what God has given you, dear friend, the word, not on what he has not given you your own imagination. We have to say the passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, or more recently The Chosen, is a great sin against God. A great sin to enhance or inform our own ideas of God contrary to the word. It's a great sin. And scripture tells us of people who did that kind of thing who approached in their own method, not the method God had ordained. Nadab and Abihu. Uzzah. God has not given us this commandment just to restrict us, though he has, but to usher us into fullness of blessing, even in this moment now. Yes, there's a censure against those who engage in such idolatry. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the father upon the children to the third and fourth generation. To the third and fourth generation. God warns the idolater, this will come to pass, not just on you, but upon your children's children's children. But great mercy, great blessedness, great love, not to three or four generations, but to a thousand generations of them that love me and keep my commandments. He says, verse 6, he will show steadfast love to thousands, not thousands of people, thousands of generations. Thousands of generations who love me and keep my commandments. Friends, is there anything more blessed than knowing and approaching God through Christ of the word? It's the only way. It's the only way of blessing. It's God's way. It's what he's taught us. And friends, would we think we know better? Would we think we know better that we could approach God through a different means he's given? He's not given us a Christ of pictures. He's given us a Christ of the word. This is how we are to know him. This is how we are to worship him. And in that, friends, is blessing upon blessing upon blessing, even to a thousand generations 
saith the Lord. Freedom and liberty and blessedness. Now the commandments thus far established, there's only one true and living God. They've established how that God is to be approached in worship and in salvation. And yet the third commandment addresses how we are to think and speak of that true and living God. How we are to think and speak and act towards that living God. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. How do we think and speak of God in his actions, his attributes, and in who he is? And we're not just talking what one commentator says is the fouled mouth profanity so prevalent today. There's far more to taking the Lord's name in vain than that, but there's not less than that, friends. Far more to it, but not less. It's a mystery to me that Christians should take God's name or the name of Jesus in vain. Use it as a swear word. That's staggering. In what world would we ever think that is permissible and good and right? That's staggering. But it is much more than just saying Jesus as a swear word or oh my God as a swear word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God. The name stands for all of God. The name Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant keeping God. His name is a reflection of who he is and what he does. Now, we need to understand the background to this. It was often the case in ancient Israel and in the the religions round about them that the name and the character and the activity of God or or a God was used by the worshipper in inappropriate ways, sometimes to invoke God's activity on their behalf. Uh, Indeed, we do that in courts today. I swear by Almighty God to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's invoking the name of God to demonstrate that we're telling the truth. Uh, Some would invoke God as if they were indebting God to act on their behalf, but God is no man's debtor. Others, much like we've seen in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees would swear perhaps not by God's name because that's too holy to swear upon, but they'd swear upon heaven or upon the, the earth or upon the temple in a way that somehow enabled them to not hold fast to their word. Because after all, we hadn't sworn by the name of God, therefore we can break our vow. Uh, Christ shows us the utter folly of that way of thinking. But friends, God is not your lucky charm. He's not your lucky rabbit's foot. God is not to be used by us. We do not employ the name of God in service to ourselves. No, friends, our view of God, of all his actions, and all his attributes, including and perhaps especially his holiness, ought not be used by us in a common fashion. We're to reverence him. We submit to him. We serve him. We don't invoke him to serve us, or we don't use his name in a callous and thoughtless fashion. 
in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, we ought to hold our God, the true and living God, in great awe and reverence. We ought to be careful how we think about God. We ought to be careful if we tell jokes that involve God. We ought to be careful not speaking the name of God or using his attributes in a way which suit us but do not bring glory to him. Because there is guilt attached by God to taking his name in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Treasure the name of God. He's your God. He's your most blessed friend. Your sustainer. The great power that keeps you alive at this very moment. Who blesses you with life upon life and fullness on a daily basis. Even in your hardest times, this God is a good God and he is to be glorified. And what enjoyment there is in reverencing his name. Thinking and speaking carefully about who he is. In all things, friends, seek to honor him. And in that, there will be great blessing. The last element of the first table of the law is, of course, in verse 8 to 11. It is the fourth commandment, the Lord's day. There's one God, his name is Yahweh, not to worship him according to our imaginations. We're to sanctify his name, and then we are to sanctify his day. We are to sanctify his day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, says God. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, it's very clear. Sabbath here described in the Old Testament, renamed and redated in the New Covenant, the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection. Here, God tells us how we're to observe his day. His day. Not your day. Not my day. His day. The seventh is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord your God. Sanctify it. Make it holy. The call here is to sanctify this day. Remember, sanctification has to do with setting apart and devotion. The two go together. We set something apart from its ordinary use and it is devoted to another use. Here, one day out of seven by the Lord is sanctified and to be sanctified by us so that we might devote it unto the Lord. All right, devote it unto the Lord. And we know as we look at the church at large, this commandment has fallen by the wayside. Evening worship was the first thing to go. The rest of the day, spend it as you wish. And now we're cancelling worship when Sunday and, and special secular days coincide like Christmas last year. We're cancelling worship in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ because apparently there are better things to do. We know the commandment has fallen by the wayside. And I don't hesitate in saying 
that the falling away from sanctifying the Lord's Day has done some of the greatest damage to the Christian church. When many Christians are profaning the day rather than sanctifying it, they're robbing God of the glory due to his name, they're harming the witness of the church and damaging their own faith inestimably. Robbing God of glory, harming the witness of the church, and doing themselves inestimable spiritual damage. This day, says God, is to be set apart. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Worship. Israel worshipped on the Lord's day morning and evening. We're following that pattern as we understand it. But apart from that, it was to be a day in which there was no work to be done. And that no work clause goes right on through verse 10. Uh, in it, you shall do no work. Um, on it, uh, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. It's all good. One of my sons did that when I was preaching once down in Georgia, and as he's walking out the door, he's shouting, Help! Help! <laughs> Isn't that right, Garen? <laughs> so, work. We haven't got time to go into the, the explication of, of, of the whole of verse 10, but look how comprehensive it is. If you had livestock or even someone visiting you, a sojourner within the gate, they were not to do work. There was to be no work done on the Lord's day. Now, we know our Lord speaks of works of necessity and mercy, which are to be done on the Lord's day. But works of necessity and mercy are not defined by us. They're defined by God. And they're defined by the nature of the work that is to be done. That that work has to be done at that time on the Lord's Day. Patients still get sick on the Lord's Day. Criminals still criminal on the Lord's Day. We need police. We can't just keep extending that and say everything is a work of necessity of mercy. So children, if you haven't done your work, your schoolwork, by Saturday night, you may not do it on the Lord's Day. That's not a work of necessity or mercy. I had to get up at 5.30 on a Monday morning to finish my schoolwork when I was a child because my parents would not allow me to do it on the Lord's Day. And needless to say, it didn't get done well. Our work is not to be done on the Lord's Day unless we're specifically called to a work of necessity or mercy. Christians are to down tools on the Lord's Day. That's what we're resting from our ordinary labors, so that we might rest in God and in his provision. And if we are to down tools on the Lord's Day, it can't be that we make others pick up tools on our behalf. I want to be very clear on this, friends. There is a long history in the Christian church of no commerce, no shopping, no business, no going to restaurants or other, other such things on the Lord's Day. And there's a reason there's a long tradition of that, because it's a biblical tradition. Six days shall you labor. It's a long tradition because it's a biblical tradition. 
Don't make others work on your behalf unless you're engaged in a work of necessity or mercy or you need one. You see, friends, the hallowing of the Lord's day is one of the greatest witnesses that we have to the world looking on. One of the greatest witnesses. And I understand many of us have not grown up with perhaps a high view of the Lord's day. That's fine. We can discuss these things. Absolutely. But it's one of the greatest witnesses to the world that we're going to say we will reserve this day for worship and service and spiritual and, yes, physical rest because it's God's holy day. God's holy day. The church at large has sacrificed worship on the Lord's day. And the church at large has adopted the world's practice with respect to the Lord's day. I say there's nothing or few things more injurious to our mission and calling as a church than compromising on this commandment. A non-worshipping church, a church which has adopted the world's standards, has done untold harm not only to the cause of Christ in the church, but untold harm to individual Christians. What's the world going to think of a church that can dispense with worship at the drop of a hat? It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. I'm not going to go at anyone here. I don't know what all your practices are. That's not my point. It's really not my point. What's the world going to think of an institution like that? Would you join a golf club where nobody ever goes to play golf? Or cheats at the rules as it wants to, to get a better score? I mean, I need that kind of club, but... um, I mean, really, let's think about it. See, the call here, friends, is for each one of us and our households. To boycott the practices of the world and enter into the joy of spiritual rest on the Lord's Day. By all means, get some physical rest on the Lord's Day. I try and do it every Sunday so I can come back somewhat refreshed for evening worship. But that's not the principal rest of the Sabbath. It's a spiritual rest whereby we cease from our labors. And we enter into the rest that Christ has procured for us. That's why this day is now the first day of the week. Here it's the seventh day of the week. When Christ died, was raised again from the dead, the day of resurrection became the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Energized, strengthened, blessed by being in God's presence, you're now sent out into the world, having enjoyed the rest of today, the fellowship of like-minded brethren, the worship of the true and living God, you can go into the world energized, strengthened to serve the true and living God. Friends, the commandments speak to us of what it is like to have God as our God, to have God as our Father, to have God, as Scripture calls him, as our portion What it's like to have a vital interest in Almighty God. And I read some words in the week from the 
Puritan Thomas Brooks, who spoke about God as our portion. Think of the first table of the law as directing us practically how God may be our portion. And with this, I'll finish. Brooks says this, our God, the true and living God, our God is a safe portion. He says our God is a secure portion. He is a portion that no one can rob you of. He is a portion that no one can touch or take from you. He is a portion that no one can cheat or spoil you of. God is such a portion that no friend, no foe, and no devil can even rob you of. O Christians, God is so yours in Christ, and so yours by covenant, and so yours by promise, and so yours by purchase... And so yours by conquest, and so yours by marriage union and communion, and so yours by the earnest of the Spirit, and so yours by the feelings and witnesses of the Spirit, that no power on earth can ever pilfer your portion, or cheat, or rob you of your portion. Our God, the true and living God, is our portion. Friends, the law of God, if we have eyes to see it, to see it by faith, is the way to enjoy our God and delight in him as our portion. Let's pray. We worship you, our blessed portion. In you is all goodness and refreshment and peace and joy and we praise you lord that you have instructed us not only about life in christ but also how we may enjoy you and bring glory to you you are great your faithfulness is great there is no shadow of turning with you we thank you lord god for delivering us and for keeping us We praise you and bless your name, both now and forevermore. Amen.